good to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. I wanted to give you just a little uh, quick scheduling sort of view. Um, the plan is that tonight we're going to get very close to the end of Matthew 10, if not the end. So that means that at some point next Wednesday, we will start 1 Corinthians. And we'll have you know, quite a bit of discussion about all the background issues, all that introductory uh, stuff that I love about uh, starting a new book, um, the history and the context and all of that good stuff. We'll talk a lot about Paul and why he wrote it and where he, where he was and what he was doing and all that. Um, so we may get through Matthew 10 tonight. We may still have three verses left by the time we're done tonight. Um, and then after that first week, next week, Wednesday of starting 1 Corinthians, we actually have to take a Wednesday off because we'll have Ash Wednesday. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that on Ash Wednesday we do a 7 o'clock in the morning service for 30 minutes and then we do a 7 o'clock in the evening service for maybe 35 minutes. And uh, so we won't do a Bible study that <clears throat> Wednesday. I think that's um, March 2nd. And then we'll be back at it March 9th, be in 1 Corinthians. And then uh, March 16th is the day after I have my rotator cuff surgery, and I'm planning to be here. And so and uh, the reason I'm planning to be here is because I understand that the guy who's doing it is uh, our, our oldest daughter, Shelby, is, is, a, is an orthopedic surgery PA, and it's her guy. Now, she's not going to be in the room when I'm being operated on. That might be some sort of a conflict of interest or something, but um, he's going to do it. And uh, I, I asked her, I said, does he do a nerve block? And she said, yes. And generally speaking, that eliminates the pain for about 48 hours. So I'll be inside that window Wednesday the 16th. Uh, and then by Wednesday the 23rd, uh, I should be, I, I, the pain should have moderated by then. Does that all make sense? So I'll be back. I'll be in. I'll be in the thing, the you know the immobilizer. But anyway, all right. So that's and then we're just kind of off to the races from there on First Corinthians. Um, there's 15 chapters in First Corinthians, 15 or 16, and uh, I'm assuming it'll take us 20 or 25 weeks to get through First Corinthians. There's a lot there. So and it's a long book. So and that, and that'll be actually kind of fast. Um, I know Larry Wright when he took us. This is 30 years ago when he took us through. Anybody remember Larry Wright? He was Tom Schrader's teacher. Um, so he's really old. So anyway, um, when he took us through 1 Corinthians, it was more than a year uh, on weekly Bible studies. So, um, so what we've looked at so far is um, this is Jesus sort of backstage with his disciples. And he's giving them some inside information on how they, he wants them to accomplish uh, sort of these missions. And the first mission he's going to send them on is this uh, local temporal mission to the Jews first, because that's historically what God would do. Um, with It's not that he doesn't love Gentiles, it's just the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And, and we see throughout the Bible that's constantly the pattern, that the Jews are always the light to the Gentiles. And even when Paul would go on his missionary journeys, he would enter a new city, and the first thing he would do is he would go to the synagogue, if there was a synagogue, if there wasn't, he'd just find the Jewish community, and he would go there first, and he would preach about the Messiah, and eventually he'd get kicked out of the synagogue, and that's when they'd start the church uh, with the people who uh, would, would leave the synagogue because they wanted to follow uh, Jesus. And then there's uh, this, this part that we left off uh, last week, which is essentially 
verses 16 through 23, where Jesus is saying, now, um, this longer worldwide mission of going into the Gentiles, I want to tell you about that. And so we were just about finished with that when we got to verse 23, and that's where I'm going to pick it up. So Jesus says, sort of at the end of this, well, let me just read uh, 16 through 23, and then you'll have 23 in context. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as as serpents and innocent as doves. This is now to to the Gentiles. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to, uh, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then verse twenty-three. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Truly I, for truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So verse 23 seems odd to me on, on two accounts. Um, the first part is this idea of fleeing. So Jesus throughout this, this chapter and really throughout the gospel, especially of Matthew, has said to his disciples, you need to be steadfast. You need to endure everything. You're going to be persecuted. You need to persevere, and you need to be patient. But then here he says, but flee any town that gives you any trouble. (laughs) So it seems like a contradiction. And I think that it's important for us to be reminded from time to time that it's a big part of being as wise as a serpent to know when to walk or when to run away. That there are times when we need to go. We need to walk away. We need to run away. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, flee immorality. So there's times when it's smart, when it's discerning to run. It's not necessarily a sign of cowardice. Sometimes it's a characteristic of discernment and godly insight to turn and run. Uh, But it's also, what what is also problematic is the second half of this verse when he says, I say to you, you will have not gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, it seems that this didn't come true, right? Because Jesus still hasn't come. And he's saying this to these disciples. So again, understanding context and and rhetoric is is really important. This is part of this long-term mission plan that Jesus is sending them on. And what Jesus means here is that missions, the idea that the church is sent, the proclamation and the spread of the gospel will continue indefinitely and unabated until he comes again. It, the, the rhetorical device that he's using here is known as synecdoche. That's not a place in Connecticut. It's synecdoche, okay? Not schenectedy. I don't even, anyway. Um, uh, synecdoche is a rhetorical device where the smaller part represents the bigger part. So what he's talking about is the mission of the church will not... Uh, will continue unabated until I come again. So again, we're in these last days, which we talked about a little bit last week. And I'm going to bring this up again because it just continues to fascinate me. I've already mentioned this. 
Every 10 years or so, we hear from people who are determined to convince us that if the church doesn't change, it will cease to to exist. About every 10 years, there's a new batch of essays written about how the church needs to change, the church needs to stop doing this, the church needs to start doing that, the church needs to quit preaching the word of God as if it's infallible. The church, just on and on and on and on. It's the same argument every 10 years. It's like these people that write these essays haven't read the essays in the past. They think they've coming up with something new, and this is, they're going to they're gonna save the church somehow. And again, uh, one of the things that bothers me is it just completely discounts the sovereignty of God, um, but it also discounts history. People have been saying this literally for millennia, and yet the church just keeps going. Here's what I think people are actually saying. Now, some of you know that my spiritual gifts are sarcasm and cynicism. That's where I really am am, and just dialed in, okay? But I really believe that this is actually what people are saying. This is known as the text behind the text. Here's what they're actually saying. They're saying the church that I want, a church that where my preferences and my comfort is protected, a church where we have majority rule and influence in the country, that church is going to cease to exist. And my response to that is, good. Good. Okay? Christians and Christian leadership get lazy and complacent when we're in charge, when we have the upper hand. And more important than that, We need to understand that the constant, repetitive story in Scripture, in the Bible, is that God works through exile and remnant, not through majority and influence. The church, the early church, was absolutely killing it until Constantine decided to become a Christian and make uh, Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire in 325. That nearly killed the church. That's what happens when the church has majority rule and influence and is in charge. God does, God does much greater things through exile and remnant. What is impossible for man is possible for God. We need to remember that. So now having worked through the short-term mission to Israel and the long-term missions to the church of all nations... We move into the defining characteristics of disciples on mission. And it's been said that the ultimate goal of a disciple is to be like the teacher or master. And the interesting thing is, in this case, is that being like Jesus means that uh, the disciples are going to be persecuted. Okay, that's the ultimate goal is to be like the master. And that means we're going to be persecuted. Or at least these guys are. Maybe it won't happen to us. Okay, so verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant uh, like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those in his household? Um, This is a reminder that they are going to do all of this stuff to Jesus. And so what makes you think you're so special that you will escape the same treatment, attitude, and scorn from others? They're going to do it to Jesus. You claim to be a follower of his. This is going to probably present some challenges for you. And I continue to ask this question. Why are there so many Christians who think that this will never happen to them in any shape or form? Um, I mean, it even happens um, Christian on Christian if you're not the right kind of Christian. You know, it happens Christian on Christian if you're not the right kind of Christian. 
You know, I'm teaching at GCU, which, which has been an absolute uh, joy. I'm, I, it's been years since I've taught there. I'm teaching one class. It's MIN 430, Ministerial Communication. So they are all, everybody in my class, they're all College of Theology students at Grand Canyon University. They're all seniors. They all know how to write really well. I'm learning a lot from them. Um, they're all about to graduate. It's, it's really wonderful. But I will also tell you that some of them are pretty dogmatic. <laughs> and if you don't believe exactly the way they do, um, not a lot of grace involved. It's very interesting, you know. So even Christian on Christian. And then verses 26 through 33, these are exhortations to proclamation. In other words, Jesus is exhorting them to proclaim the gospel. I'll just read the whole uh, uh, paragraph here. Jesus says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's kind of a famous verse. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny uh, before my Father who is in heaven. So verse 26 could be one of the most truth-filled verses in, in all of the Bible. And this is the verse, if it's true, and it is true, Fills believers, I believe, with hope and encouragement, and it fills non-believers with dread and dejection. Have no fear, because what has been covered up or hidden or deceived, all of it will be revealed. It's all going to be revealed. All of our efforts at hiding will be for naught. It's amazing how good we think we are at hiding stuff, right? And the truth is, we're not too bad at hiding stuff from each other. We're not. We're pretty good at hiding stuff from each other. How good do you think we are at hiding stuff from God, though? That's the question. And he's promising that he's going to reveal all of this stuff. Okay? And that's the deal here. And so verse 27, Jesus is saying, this inside information, so to speak, that I, Jesus, have been given to you, you need to proclaim it. You need to preach it. You need to let people know about it. How often have you heard uh, someone talking about a financial opportunity that nobody knows about yet. And, and you can get in on the ground floor, okay? And this is an opportunity that only comes along once in a lifetime. What's the next big thing after Bitcoin? Anybody know? I'd like to know what it is because I missed the Bitcoin thing. What? NFT? NFT? What is NFT? Uh, a digital picture. Of, of, of money? It's hard to <laughs> Okay, so if I don't understand it, I'm not going to invest any money in it. So anyway, here's the point of all of this. This is real. What Jesus is telling them to get in on, this is, this is real. And it's about something more important than a financial opportunity. And he's saying, you, disciples, have been selected by the king of kings to spread the word. And by spiritual ancestral DNA, so have we. 
We have a spiritual ancestral DNA with these disciples. And then verse 28, why are we so afraid of man but not, not at all afraid of God? This is an, the inversion of another biblical truth which says, do not seek the affirmation of human beings but rather the affirmation of God. And notice the language he uses there. He says, here's the person you should, here's the one you should fear, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now I want to make a differentiation here to make sure we understand with great clarity exactly what Jesus is saying. It's not that there is destruction or eternity in hell. It's that those who go to hell will be eternally destroyed in hell. For eternity, they will be suffering that fate. And, and here you go. I'm not trying to use fear here. This is just what God's word says. The stakes are really high. We should believe in Jesus. And then verses 29 and 30, even something as inconsequential as a sparrow is loved, for, is loved by and cared for by God. Even something as inconsequential as a sparrow. And this, this should encourage us and remind us that we are of infinite value to God for whatever reason, because that's his character. His, his mercy overflows, his love overflows, his grace overflows, and it overflows to us. And, and it's interesting that Jesus is using sparrow and a penny here because proverbially, the, the sparrow, proverbially, metaphorically, the sparrow is the smallest uh, creature, metaphorically, proverbially proverbially, the smallest of all the creatures, and the penny is the smallest financial unit. So if God cares about them, he certainly cares about you. And then verse 31, he says, have no fear because you are way more valuable than a bird, you bird brain. And then here's, a, here's another concise way of looking at verses 26 through 31. Jesus gives three reasons why disciples should not be afraid. Number one, the truth about God, the gospel, and ministry will become known, and the world and its ways will be proved false. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a disciple's eternal destiny is secure. And then the third thing is that God the Father has unrelenting um, sovereign supervision in our lives. Unrelenting sovereign supervision in our lives. I've been talking lately about how, uh, even said this on Sunday morning, about how cognitively, Intellectually, I've known for years that God is sovereign. You know, I get it. No maverick molecule, blah, blah, blah. But it's only been in the last year that I feel like I've actually started living like that was true. It's, it's that old saying, you know, you got to get stuff from here to here. So it's, it's just got to go 18 inches. But that last 18 inches is really hard. And I feel like that's what's been happening lately. And then verses 32 and 33, I'll reread those again. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, this is a significant but troubling comment by Jesus. And it's troubling because of our fear of man. Because of our incessant desire to be approved by others. We tend to deny Christ. But he says that if we deny him permanently, why would he ever accept us before his Father? He, he won't. This is a hard truth. Now, we temporarily deny Jesus. I had a friend once who said, here's the, here's the definition of sin. Maybe you've heard me say this before. Here's the definition of sin. Sin is temporary disbelief in God, temporary unbelief in God. The moment we sin, the moment I sin, 
What I'm saying is, God, I don't believe that what you have for me is better than what I'm about to do. It's, it's a moment of unbelief. God's grace through Christ on the cross covers that because I'm in Christ. But the truth is, is if, if we do that always, if that's the way we live our life, if we just deny that Christ is the Messiah, deny that he's God, that's when he's going to deny us before his father as well. Kind of reminds me of Mark. I said this a couple Sundays ago. It was Mark Manson who said, no relation to Charlie. This is a different Manson. Um, but uh, he writes books. Mark Manson does. He says, truth is like poetry, and most people hate poetry. So, um, at any rate, let's reflect on the characteristics we get from this paragraph we just went through. Jesus is telling us we need courage, we need confidence, we need boldness, we need a willingness, and we need, and we have security in him. Now, at this point, you might think that people, those with Jesus, who are there with Jesus, and many of us today, uh, would want to say something to Jesus like this. Jesus, come on, man, you've got to lighten up a little bit. Following you, you're saying, is going to be filled with challenges and oppression and persecution, but refusing to follow you will result in eternal destruction. Doesn't sound like a great choice. It seems like you're really harshing the mellow that we've, we've been able to establish here on earth. And so Jesus feels a need to further explain. He says, I didn't come to do what you think I should have done. I came for a different purpose. And we find that in verses 34 through 39. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It doesn't seem like Jesus needed to come for that, but at any rate. (laughs) And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, This is, again, uh, just an incredibly important, incredible paragraph. It's interesting, the kerfuffle, what's that word, kerfuffle, right? Right. Is that the right word? I've always wanted to use that word, and I finally got to use it, and I think I mispronounced it. Anyway, that we find ourselves in today, okay? People... Think about just in the last two years. Now, this has always been true, but not to the extent of the last two years. People have lost friends and family simply because they believe something different, anything different, than a formerly good friend or a family member. That includes politics, religion, worldview, race, social media, masks, vaccines, justice, whatever. It used to be the only division we had in the state of Arizona was U of A and ASU. Now it's everything, okay? All right, but that's the world we live in today. And here's the devastating truth. If you confess Jesus, expect that close, loving family members and close friends will walk away from you. So, three things to know about this. Jesus said this would happen, so why are we surprised? Because we think we're impervious. Number two, this is one of the most radical things that Jesus says in this context because first century Jewish families were inseparable. And he's saying your family is going to be separated by this. And then third, the very people who think Jesus is harsh when he says things like this are actually the people who perpetrate this phenomenon. I don't know if you've seen that irony. Okay, but that's true as well. 
So anyway, I feel like we need to talk a lot about verse 34. Let me reread it. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So first of all, the sword that Jesus speaks here of here is metaphorical. It's a metaphorical sword. Otherwise, why did he get so upset with Peter when Peter drew his sword uh, when, the, uh, when Judas brought the professional religious people and the Roman uh, soldiers? Why did Jesus get so upset with Peter? He should have been like, let's go. Bring it on. And second of all, and perhaps more importantly, verse 34 is actually about love, real love, but that tends to drive people crazy. Uh, there was a guy named, um, you may have heard of him, uh, named John Lennon, who once sang, All You Need Is Love. Anybody remember that song? Yeah, this room seems to have a good John Lennon vibe in it. Okay, so. Um, now, people actually believe this, and the reason they believe what Lennon sang, it's a very popular song, um, but people, the reason people believe this is because their definition of love is far too limited. As Martin Luther King uh, said, that this kind of love that they believe in is unhelpful emotional bosh. And that word bosh means absurdity. Is it love to sit idly by while people destroy themselves? Is that love? Do whatever you want to do, even if it destroys you. Is that really love? I, no. Is it love to never intervene when someone is devastating others because that's their desire and their heart is telling them to? No. no. It's not love. See, Jesus says, says, I came to bring a sword. And what that actually means is the true, genuine, holy love of God is actually going to be an agent of separation. The true, genuine love of God is going to be an agent of separation like a sword. Like a sword. And the reason is because the holiness of God cannot endure the destruction of his creation without consequence. But we humans, in our sin, even and especially when we believe that what we're doing is somehow loving, we actually fragment what God desires to see as whole. God desires wholeness. He's not interested in fragmentation. And so this kind of bosh love actually blows things apart. Our problem is, is that our intentions are always influenced by the corruption of sin. Haven't you ever had somebody say to you, yeah, I know that that's what I, I know that's what I did to you, but my intentions were good, right? As if intentions are the only thing in this world that are not corrupted by sin. The problem is, is that intentions are also corrupted by sin. We think that there's this little safe place for intentions over here that have never been touched by sin. And that's just not true. Even, now, this is interesting to me. Even people who don't believe in God know that this is true. I've, re I've been reading a lot of atheists in the last 18 months. I know that might sound strange for a pastor to say. Uh, they're writing about things, though, that I'm interested in, and they happen to be pretty smart, and they happen to have some pretty good arguments, okay? Here's what I've discovered about these atheists, though, okay? You would think that, that all of them, by the notion that people are basically good. Atheists don't believe that. This whole idea that people are basically good, atheists do not believe that. You have to be a secular humanist to believe that, okay? So here's, 
This is the theory of confluence now. When, when you want to persuade somebody, you start, you know, if you have two circles and they're overlapping, you always start in the middle where people agree on stuff. You don't start on the outer edge because then you're just going to make people mad. You always start with where you're, you have confluence of agreement, okay? Here you go. Atheists, Orthodox Jews, and Christians actually agree that there's something wrong with people. Some of you are like, that, that's really amazing. I have something in common with an atheist. Yes, we do. We have that in common with atheists. atheists okay? And what's wrong with people is sin. And that's what taints their love into destruction. Now, we'd like to think that the solution is that no one gets hurt, no one suffers, no one's held accountable, and no one gets their feelings offended, but that's, not, that's just not reality. Um. I know Jackie loves me. That also means that I'm going to have to hear some hard things from her from time to time. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. Is Jesus love? Not a trick question. Yes. But again, as Martin Luther King said, God's love, Jesus' love, biblical love is not some emotional nonsense or baloney. God's love speaks truth about evil and sin. I found that people who like to talk about the ooey-gooey, mushy, fluffy love of Jesus either hate this verse or pretend it doesn't exist. There is going to be separation. Sheep from goats, wheat from tares, those in Christ from those who are not in Christ. And, And please know this. Jesus clearly says here and in other places that there's no middle ground. There's no neutral space. You can't hide behind not making a decision for Jesus and then claim you never got a chance to make a decision about it. There's no neutral place, okay? A lot of people want to keep their options open. Jesus says you really can't. You don't don't have the ability to keep your options open. You know, he talks about how the person comes and says, I'm going to follow you, but first I want to go say goodbye to my family. No. I want to follow you, but first I have to go finish my business. No. Okay, you can't keep your options open. The good news is that Christ, in Christ, we have a remedy for this sin. We have redemption. The bad news is that we're sinners, and apart from the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we actually prefer the sinful life. You know, Schrader used to say all the time, um, if you're not having fun when you're sinning, you're not sinning correctly. Okay? The challenge, though, is that we've got to choose, and not choosing is a choice. And then in verses 35 through 36, Jesus goes on to say that this is so serious that it will separate, it will pit each other, pit against each other, our closest, most humanly sacred relationships. And then verse 37, if I could find it, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. As a parent, I find that really just a very challenging verse. But he goes on to say that this is Um, this is really about our proper priorities in Christ. It's not that we abandon love for our loved ones. That's not it. It's just prioritizing them correctly. But it is true that they need to... uh, Here you go. What what happens with our family is they need to understand that Jesus happens to come first and that that's actually best for our family if Jesus comes first. Okay? Okay. I will say this, it's absolutely no secret that marriages in which spouses love God more than they love each other, those are the best marriages. 
It's also true that those marriages that put God first often struggle with their extended families not appreciating or understanding that. I do a ton of premarital counseling, and that's just true. That's just true. It's not unusual to have a young couple that's saying, uh, our parents are really having a difficult time with this idea that we're going to love God more than we love each other and more than we love them. And that's created a, created a tremendous amount of anxiety and tension and conflict and all of that. But what, what the family members don't seem to understand is that the couple will be able to love them better and more out of the overflow from their love for God. And that happens with spouses, too, as they love each other. And then verses uh, 38 and 39 are what I would call humble submission verses. I mean, how often do we talk about that here, about humble submission? Reminds me of John 3.30, where John says, John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And again, Jesus says it plainly. If we choose him, if we choose him, he's going to have supremacy over our lives. And that's actually good news for us. It's not restrictive, it's actually freedom. Tyler talked about that this last Sunday. And ultimately, as we look at these six verses, what Jesus is telling us is that a disciple will continue to respect their family even if their family rejects them. And it's possible that their family will reject them. I've had some family members who have rejected me over this Jesus thing. Now, not my parents. Interestingly enough, it took about 20 years, but my parents actually uh, eventually came to Christ in their 70s, which is really weird. Okay? Um, but siblings, not quite, as, not quite as exciting there. So, let's move on to the last two verses and see how far we get. We got about a little over 10 minutes. So here's what Jesus says at the end of this chapter. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So let's first talk about why prophet and a righteous person. Why is he talking about those things here? What's the difference and is there a difference? To be sure, there is an overlap there between a prophet and a righteous person. But specifically, a prophet, prophet is one who, number one, speaks on behalf of God, and number two, has the gift or the ability of being able to look at a person's life and behavior and then read the scriptures and say, okay, if you continue to do this, according to what God's word says here, you're going to end up over here in a mess of trouble. Okay? Now, if you look through the Old Testament prophet books, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, th those books, a lot of people think that the Old Testament prophecy is about uh, being able to uh, tell the future without any indication or evidence of what the future might be. And maybe about 5% of Old Testament prophecy is in that category. That's what the Old Testament scholars would tell you. About 5%. Daniel does some of it. Ezekiel does some of it. Isaiah did a little bit of it. But the vast majority of what prophets are doing in the Old Testament 
is they're looking at how the Israelites are living their life. They're looking at God's word and they're saying, you're on the wrong track and therefore this is what's going to happen. That's what's going on there. And so there are prophets today who can do the same thing. There are people who practice prophecy today the same way. They're not future telling. They're just saying, look, you're doing this. I know God's word. This is where you're going to end up. Boom. And that's what happens. Okay. So that's what prophets do. Okay. It's, it's, here's, here's what you might call it. Informed discernment is what it is. It's informed discernment. And I would even argue you don't have to be especially gifted to do this, but you do need to know God's word. You need to have some discernment, and then you need to be bold enough to say something. So that's the prophet. Now, what's the righteous person? The righteous person is the person who believes in Jesus and obeys him and is therefore living the kingdom life. Now, about the transformation This is important, transformation as well. If you are in Christ, if you've embraced the gospel, if you've said yes to Jesus, your life will be lived in a manner worthy of your calling, as Paul says in most of his letters. It will be lived with discernment to true spiritual things. It will be lived with a desire to seek both the will and the wisdom of God. And your reward will be great, though not necessarily a worldly reward. That, that, can, that can be a little bit challenging for some people, too, especially if you've watched a lot of TV religion, you know. And what is the reward? Well, the reward is eternal life. The reward is the new Jerusalem. And one other thing. True joy here, even in the midst of suffering and hardship... When that comes, you'll also live with true joy, even in the midst of suffering and hardship when that comes. And it will come. So James says, consider it all joy when, not if, you, you encounter trials of various kind. Okay? And you'll live in joy. And, and here you go. We need to define the difference between joy and happiness because they're two different things. Happiness is based on your circumstances. So... Let's just say, hypothetically, I stop at Circle K on the way home and I buy a lottery ticket and I find out on Sunday that I, that I won the jackpot and it was a million five, okay? Well, who's not going to be happy? Well, you may not be happy, but if, I, if you were me, who wouldn't be happy about that, right? Who wouldn't be happy about that? It's, 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 it's your circumstances, but joy, joy is based on a relationship with God, which is something you can actually have and manifest in difficult times, of times of suffering, times of challenge, times of great tribulation and trial. And here's the other thing about happiness. I, I just I continue to find this really interesting. Um, I, there are certain Harvard psychologists that I like to read, and occasionally I like to go on the... Um, Harvard School of Psychology website. Not, not Harvard's website, but the Harvard School of Psychology website. So, um, Several of their research professors, their teaching professors, have written essays about how people who are truly happy never pursue happiness as an, ends in itself, as an end in itself. 
that that's not the route to happiness. If you're out there pursuing happiness, you will never find happiness. This is what psychologists are saying. And by the way, this lines up with scripture. Okay. What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then these things will be added unto you. Happiness is always a consequence of a greater pursuit, a greater endeavor in life. And then the funny thing is, is they go on to say, and oh, by the way, if you decide to use that as a methodology to get to happiness, well, I'm going to go out and pursue something bigger than happiness then so that I can be happy. You still won't be happy. You have to, in an altruistic way, pursue this greater thing. Well, Jesus says the ultimate greater thing is the gospel, is the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. I've said for 25 years in premarital counseling that the point of getting married is not for happiness, it's for the pursuit of holiness together. And out of that pursuit of holiness can come happiness. By the way, Keller says the same thing in his book on marriage, the meaning of marriage. So... That is Matthew chapter 10. Bullet points on Matthew chapter 10. The authority of Jesus is given in some measure to his disciples. By the way, we have some measure of that authority too. We need to remember that the historical um, order of salvation is to the Jew first, then to the Greek. There are, divine, there are defining characteristics of those in Christ, and especially those on mission. There will be division between believers and non-believers. There will be persecution and hardship. In all of it, God is sovereign and God is good, and all of this is for his glory. We are all sent in some manner or form, and we are to go, even if it's just into the marketplace. And I don't say even if it's just into the marketplace to minimize that. That's important. Those are important mission fields. There's no middle ground with Jesus. We're either with him or we're not. Jesus must be prioritized. In other words, all of life is all for Jesus. (coughs) So that's Matthew 10. And um, when we come back next week, we're just going to start with 1 Corinthians. We're going to do some background work and then we'll get into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you want to read ahead... Here you go. If, if you want a reading assignment for this week, for next week, read 1 Corinthians 1, but read, get your study Bible out and read the introduction to 1 Corinthians. That'll help you prepare for what we're going to talk about uh, next week in 1 Corinthians. So let me pray. We'll be on our way. Father God, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you for uh, Matthew chapter 10 and for the ability to dive into that and, and discover Uh, more about the heart of Jesus and what our heart should be. God, I pray that you would make Redemption Church a church that is like Matthew 10, that understands who Jesus is, loves him, follows him, and is willing to go to the mat for him. I pray that that's what Redemption Church Arcadia would be, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.